Hello, so what follows is the next installment of my series with Karin. Um, unfortunately, owing to my own, uh, how should we say, failures with regards to recording, um, I clipped off the beginning of the sentence uh, when uh, Karin starts in this next episode. Uh, so therefore, I'm just recording this little bit as an additional introduction, um, just to let the listener know uh, Karin has returned from London uh, and is now back in Germany. It's 1990. And uh, what follows is essentially the story that takes Karin through the 90s and towards her role with Penn. Enjoy. Come relatively uh, rapidly. So in 1990, in June, I found myself back in Germany where actually didn't want to be because I wanted to get out again. Mm. But it's wonderful because at the time um, the political situation was so interesting that I decided, oh, it's, if I have to go back to Germany, it's the right time. And my brother and his family were kind enough to take me in again and I could even uh, occupy my uh, the room I'd had uh, 30 years ago and because my, my niece was, uh, I think she was uh, at the university already. So after three months, I found a place in Cologne, which I rented and settled, unsettled. Um, I had a place, I bought myself, of course, some electronic equipment now, as that was the first thing. Um, but I was traumatized, I was in turmoil, and at the same time I was empty. I didn't know how it would uh, continue and would go on. And then, um, piece by piece, um, there were new strings that pulled me ahead. And I mention them right now briefly. One was um, the two people, the only two people I knew in uh, Cologne. They were the editor and the cultural editor of the uh, German medical journal. Uh, they took me under their wing and uh, pushed me. Um, they uh, uh, asked me to joined the jury of uh, literary prize by the medical association, which I did. Uh, the first book I was really impressed by was a book that Holleman had printed. I met uh, Jürgen Holleman for the first and only time, unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, when the prize was given to the uh, Romanian writer who had written a book in German on Dracula, a very ironical book, a very literary book. And I had pushed through that he was going to get the prize. Um, through that, I met, of course, the Hallmans. Um I think you should uh, tell your association with the Hallemans. Um I uh, fell in love with all of them. Jürgen had died 
but his wife and the two children were very close to my heart. They still are. And so through the Holleman and their publishing uh, came one of the first uh, interesting projects, a book on uh, modern poetry from Nigeria. And um, it was published by Holleman. Um, I did much of the editing and uh, most of the translation. And um, it's even got us closer by working together. The next string that pulled me along was, of course, pen. And there was a string that had existed before through the Berlin project that we had had in London, that um, friends in East Berlin um, invited me to come, and I did go particularly to see what the um, falling of the wall had done to East Germany. I had seen it before. Now I saw it in, in, in turmoil, in, in ruins, basically. And there were two uh, events that really uh, made me think in, in terms of what happened in East Berlin, because I was there with a journalist at Nalepa Straße, which is where the uh, GDR radio had been. And this is that, in Schönerweide, isn't it? Uh, no, it's it's. Is it in Schönerweide? I don't remember. It's southeast Berlin, right on on the Spree, I think, isn't it? Uh, um, at that time, I didn't have uh, okay. my bearings in in Berlin yet. Um, he, uh, the the uh, journalists, um, and all her colleagues were let go that day. They had gotten notice and um, under the auspices of a Bavarian uh, journalist or director of journalism, um, they didn't have a chance to come back into uh, their profession, most of them. They had been told that no more than 20% uh, would be re-employed after two types of or three types of vetting, meaning political vetting, um, uh, personal vetting, and so on and so forth. Um, A year later, I was with an American friend, neighbors from London. He was working for American universities, trying to find uh, universities they could twin with. Uh, And he took me to Greifswald, and to Rostock, because he needed uh, a German voice, uh, a translator. So I was there exactly the day that everybody at the uh, television station got notice. And not 20%, uh, I'm sorry, uh, not 20% were going to be uh, rehired. And the university people, likewise, the university people were all let go. And um, everything, in a way, was being destroyed. And that colored my feelings about the falling of the wall. I had hoped that there would be a closer connection, a closer understanding of each other, the 
East Germans pretty well knew what was going on in, in West Germany, but the uh, West Germans had no I had no clue what was going on in the East. So I felt like in a in the middle. But of course, it uh, was very important for me, and I was happy that I was close enough to uh, observe all of this. The um, pen string. Can I, before we jump into pen, yes. just because it's very interesting also for me, because I've naturally, I, I mean, I wasn't around at the time. I was sitting at home in London, uh, a very comfortable 13-year-old, uh, 12 or 13-year-old, when all of these events uh, transpired. Um, but since coming to Berlin, since getting to know many students who were both former East Germans and both you know, former West Germans, um, and listening to the different stories, listening to the different experiences, um, because the social element is really what you know is important for me. And the other day we were, I was talking with another person I do a podcast with, Alvaro, um, and the subject of that podcast was Rohveda. Do you remember him? Who was uh, yes. he? Was responsible for he was a toy hand agency and responsible for managing the transfer of ownership from former state in the East Germany state ownership to private enterprise, essentially from either Western Germany or from you know, other sort of uh, companies around the world. Um, and this proved an extremely unpopular um, enterprise. I think for the for many of the reasons that you there have suggested, and some people really don't, I think, understand, uh, and I'm one of those, how bad it must have been that not only have they gone through a complete change of their country, their government, their way of life, but on top of that, to very quickly be told, oh, now this is democracy, now you've got access to the rest of the world, um, their companies change, and then they're let go. Um, you were there, you spoke to these people. Could you just give us like a few words about how the emotional side was of this? Because this, this, this huge change within their lifetimes is something that we will probably never experience. They were devastated. Most of them were devastated. Their livelihood was taken. And, and that was the worst thing. They were told that what they had lived through uh, was worthless. They were now in a system that was worth it, and they better comply, uh, which was very hard to do uh, and to take for particularly very in intelligent people. And some of them, some of some of the uh, East Germans who had had the privilege of traveling into foreign countries uh, knew exactly what was happening, and they were they were speechless. Uh, many of them later uh, couldn't live in East Germany anymore, not because they did not have any livelihood there, but they, they couldn't fathom that all they had lived through in the GDR was brushed aside and they were brushed aside and they wanted to start over again on their own terms and most of them by that time were uh, in their uh, retirement age those i i knew and they integrated relatively well in in west germany but they had had contact with west germany uh, and the west before 
So it was easier for them. But those who had never had contact, who had never been able to travel to the West, only to the East, to uh, Hungary and so on, um, they were thrown into a system where they didn't know the signals. When you come into a foreign country, it's not just the language, it's the signals. What does it mean when somebody winks? What does it mean when somebody slaps you on the back? What does it mean when um, a sign says, um, don't cross the lawn? Does it really mean you are not allowed to cross the lawn? Because in, my, in, in your country, uh, there's no question, of course you can cross the lawn. All these things um, came into the picture and made it so very difficult for many of my friends, I must say. The um, writers, the writers had uh, had contact with uh, with West through pen, through um, uh, literary uh, agencies, through literary conferences, and so on and so forth. It was easier for them, although they were more furious than the others because they knew what was going to happen. So I, I was. Pardon? Sorry, sorry. I was going to ask a question, but please continue. No, I, I always felt in the middle because I could understand the uh, situation in East Berlin and the East Berliners almost better than the Germans who were up on a high horse. Mm. And uh, previously, you've, you you mentioned that the first time that uh, a male counterpart or colleague or project participant took you seriously, respected your opinion as an expert, as a knowledgeable individual, this first experience occurred in the former East Berlin, you said, when you were doing research. Um, and I've, I've also spoken to uh, other former East Germans, um, and they they also confirmed, not that there was a need to confirm, but they confirmed that the role of women in the former East Germany was equal. There was no sentiment of a woman had um, less of an importance or that she had to stay at home, not at all. They said that we always knew that if men worked, women had to work too. And so they maintained the same level of importance. Uh, after reunification, did you sense that some women felt a bit more uncertain about what their roles would be in this new reunified Germany? Or did you sense the fact that, you know, the former East German women were of such strong character uh, that they would carry any new burdens that came with the process? It was a mixed situation because uh, those who had been strong as women in the GDR uh, and had internalized that strength uh, had no problem uh, showing the strength in when they came to the West or when they had dealings with the West. But of course, if uh, you don't find jobs, and it was the women particularly who didn't find jobs, the men, the men um, didn't either, but uh, it was more women who all of a sudden were out of a job, and that really tore them down. Um, they became less vocal, which surprised me, because I'd uh, met them as uh, very strong and very vocal and with their own opinion, also against their husbands or, or friends, or uh, they didn't abide by what they were supposed to think and say. Uh, and that changed a bit. There was a subdued uh, atmosphere about women from the East 
when they came to the West. Yeah, that's a real shame. Um, and it's also something I, I wanted to highlight um, because I think it's important. Um, and, and as you were there on the ground and you spoke with uh, the people at the time, um, I, I value uh, it obviously as always, uh, but that additional input that, that because of the, the personal interactions that you had with them. As I said, I was at Nalepa Straße with a friend, uh, a journalist. We were uh, planning on doing something uh, east-west, um, a German uh, German project. And that was the day when they got their notice. Um, she almost disappeared from the picture and she was a strong journalist. She was a literary journalist and she disappeared. There was no job for her anymore. And that and that really hurt me personally. And did you have any interactions with her later? Uh, a couple of times, yes. But uh, sad to say, she uh, became an alcoholic. She, like many uh, journalists who are close to the bottle, um, she couldn't she couldn't handle it anymore, and she became a real hardcore alcoholic. That's a shame. So uh, before I interrupted you, sorry about that. Um, you were about to go on to pen, which was the other string, as you said, that pulled you forward. Um, so you've already at this point, obviously, you've had interactions with pen. You knew how they worked before because of your experiences elsewhere. Um, and you've made did you, as in, were you familiar with some of the people in Penn in Germany from your work beforehand? Uh, not really. A couple, yes, uh, because we uh, had visitors from from Germany in London, but there was a um, certain feeling of distrust between the exile uh, writers community and the German community, the uh, German writers. Um, they came to um, offer a hand, but uh, unfortunately our f uh, friends in London uh, were very, very, uh, they, they didn't quite trust them. So it was a strained atmosphere which came became uh, easier later once I was uh, in, um, in a different position in both pen centers, and uh, that will take us to the end of the 90s. Mm. Okay, so your first then uh, experiences of pen in Germany as a returning citizen um, in Germany? It was easy because um, I was uh, asked to represent uh, German speaking writers abroad, London, in Germany when they had their congresses or meetings and German Pen invited me as a representative of German speaking writers abroad to come to their uh, meetings and uh, to some international meetings as well. So again, I was privileged being um, pushed by both sides and making friends uh, easily with a lot of people in German pen, um, I'm talking about West German pen, because there was an East German pen, which I uh, got not um, 
I had I had met quite a number of East German pen members already in East Berlin, so I was more familiar with the East German pen end. Uh, but then I became uh, very close to some uh, West German pen members, particularly here in Cologne. Uh, a friend who just unfortunately died recently, three days ago. Um, and through um, other meetings, I met the then president of Kurdish Pen. Um, he is still a very close friend and his son, who is now in his 30s, I've known like Lena, your wife, mm. when they were very young. Um, the uh, Kurdish connection stayed on a personal level, yes, the Kurdish pen uh, later was taken over by uh, elements that didn't let my friend continue in as president. Um, he stepped out and he got into a lot of trouble. Uh, the police called him and said, you are on the death list of the PKK. At which point he called me and said, I don't want to have that talk with the police alone. So I went and I, again, was all right in the middle. Um, they started to uh, to protect him and his four-year-old son was uh, driven in a armored car to kindergarten. They had uh, to have an iron door at their apartment. And since I'd known him through Penn, I could ask the international Penn in London when they invited uh, all members to a Prague conference in the mid-90s um, to please invite the whole family. It's no use just inviting him. His wife needs a respite too, and the boy needs to see some people without police protection. Um, the police did protect us um, every 50 kilometers on the highway, on the motorway, was a was stationed a police car. So it was very obvious they were looking that we were going, getting through all right. And I told them uh, that we don't need any protection in, in Czechoslovakia uh, because there will be protection at the conference because we had uh, the only woman who ever was under a fatwa uh, from Bangladesh there, and she was heavily protected. So the whole thing was, uh, the whole uh, conference was under police surveillance, so to speak. Um, we got, this was a funny thing, we got into Czechoslovakia, and all of a sudden I said, oh, there's a, um, there, no, um, my friend's wife said, oh, look, there's a um, restaurant that uh, is, what, the name is something like uh, Aunt Maria. It's a Turkish restaurant. And while she was talking about Turkish and restaurant, I was looking at the uh, dividing line of the highway and there was a police car from the Czechs. So they were even protecting us there. These were um, things that got me into 
an international kind of uh, Germany, which it has stayed. Um, most of my friends come from outside. I have a lot of friends who um, got in touch again from school times, and I made some new friends here in Cologne. So um, I was also re I also re-entered a personal Germany and uh, was kind of carried by my friends. Okay, so just to reiterate, so in 1990, when you returned to Germany from London, you went to Mönchengladbach, uh, you stayed with your brother, um, and a few months later is when you established yourself in Cologne. Yes. Essentially, all right, cool. Um, and from this point on is where the, the strings that you've mentioned so far began to pull you along and so on. At what point did you solidify your position with Penn? Did this come much later? This came around 99 because okay. um, I, I did not switch from German-speaking writers abroad to German Penn until 97. And two years later, I was uh, I was voted in as vice president and in charge of writers in prison. But that's a different story. Yeah. Um, there was... Um, Another string that kept me busy and kept me thinking and working, and that was the Rushdie, uh, the Rushdie uh, support committee in Germany, was uh, formed by a set of friends, and they pulled me in there, and I was happy to help and be the uh, English-speaking intermediary between London and. Cologne, and we uh, worked for years as a defense committee for Salman Rushdie, and uh, even on the suggestion of one of our friends, boycotted uh, Lufthansa because they weren't carrying Rushdie, and with a uh, group of uh, signatures, uh, which uh, we all collected, particularly one of our members who was a, and is famous, um, we were able to change uh, the, the rules of Lufthansa. And when Lufthansa started carrying uh, Oshdi again, uh, other, other airlines did too, the British did too. The French had always always uh, carried him because they said we cannot uh, ostracize uh, somebody who is being under pressure anyway. And this is because of his book, Satanic Verses, I guess. When uh, yes, yeah, yes, okay. Yeah. He was he, um, the fatwa was of eighty nine. Um, it was a death sentence basically by the uh, religious leadership of Iran. Yeah. And there were uh, millions of dollars uh, uh, promised to those who would kill him. And as from what we knew at during the last during the first uh, six or seven years, there were at least um, eight um, missions from Iran to England to kill him. 
This is this is under uh, Khomeini. But when Khomeini died, uh, did the fatwa continue, as far as you were Absolutely. aware? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's still on. Okay. But he's in in uh, in America, and he's safer there than he ever was. In um, England, he had the protection, had the same level of protection that the Queen had. Okay. I mean, safety, I guess, is a relative term, isn't it? Because from, I mean, when I read um, the book by uh, Roberto Saviano, if you remember, when he went undercover in Napoli, uh, Gamora, um, I think, was the book. And um, I believe the the Gamora, they kind of said... yeah, we'll get you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, he's still writing and he's still alive. But I mean, he has to live every day now um, with the knowledge that any day could be his last. So I, I mean, I'm not sure how how persistent the uh, you know this uh, this fatwa is with regards to people actually you know after him. But um, you know, it's sometimes it's enough to simply have that thought in the back of your mind that when you wake up, this could be my day. I um, think that uh, Rushdie was relatively well protected. He was relatively strong. He appeared at some international pen congresses. We heard of it mostly about an hour before he came. Um, The saying was that... um, they couldn't pull together um, a group of people to kill him with less than in less than 24 hours. So there was always uh, a 24-hour period where you could uh, hint to the fact that Rushdie was coming. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I had seen him quite a bit on uh, on the podium in Penn events and. Uh, we had uh, a meeting in London, a reception, and uh, he came to Leipzig uh, to the book fair. And um, it, in the end, uh, disappeared. The, the pressure disappeared, and uh, our committee kind of fell apart. No, it it, it didn't disintegrate. It just faded away. Mm. Okay. And, and this, and this, uh, so this committee began in not in eighty nine, but what, um, when? In, in the early early nineties. Uh, I don't remember quite when it was. Uh, I should think ninety two. There were committees in England and in Scandinavia and so on, and the German committee had already um, formed in a way. Uh, so it might have been uh, 1993, 94, because um, bef- between 91 and 93, I had two extremely busy years because of the Women Writers Committee, which had originated in Maastricht in 1990. Mm. The Women Writers Committee um, was formed by about 16, 17 women present at the at the International Congress. With me was my publisher and friend, 
from London. And the two of us, of course, happily signed the founding uh, the founding uh, document. And a year later, the committee was uh, granted a an amount of, of money for a workshop at the Frankfurt Book, Book Fair. Um, one of our members had close connections to UNESCO and got the money. But um, I was asked to pull it together and to organize it because I was the only one who was living in Germany and I was had been uh, loosely uh, voted in as uh, European coordinator. So I had to pull together this workshop on uh, South-North publishing, meaning um, a workshop for 20 women writers from around the world, from the South and from the uh, Eastern countries, with um, some 10, 15 publishers from around the world and 10 members from our women's committee. Um, the money that we had uh, was less than one-tenth or uh, no, uh, less than 20% of what we needed. So because something that I had never thought of was there was all of a sudden there was uh, envy somebody wanted to organize it from New York and which of course was was impossible. So uh, what had been a supporter became a torpedo. And I was in the end alone with some friends from the committee to find the money in Germany, in ministries. Uh, we didn't have many publishers who gave money. In the end, it was peace pieces, piecework, because it was in in batches of $200 that I had, uh, had to fight for. And I had money to uh, employ an assistant for one week. She was fantastic. She was absolutely fantastic. She could, after that week, could take over in Frankfurt at the book fair where I was in charge of 40 people who had to be housed in mines, who had to be lugged back and forth, who had their workshop, and I had to uh, man the, the stand at the book fair and deal with, with the uh, interviews and so on and so forth. Um, it took me two years to pull this together and another three years, uh, three months to account for the money to the, to the ministries in particular. Um, and by that time, I was I was absolutely uh, without power. I was you were uh, drained, as it were. Uh, not just drained. I I developed heart problem because I of course uh, felt we can't give the money back because we have spent it. Uh, some of our friends were saying. Uh, it's no. It doesn't matter if we've spent it. We can lock. Uh, we can uh, stop the, the workshop, um, which 
was against my my inner rule. If you have taken money and you uh, can possibly do something positive with the money in the sense uh, of, of a workshop or of helping uh, women writers in foreign countries, um, I simply I simply work day and night. And uh, it was at the same time a very rewarding uh, event and it was very rewarding to have quite a number of friends there from Turkey, from uh, Romania, from uh, uh, Slovenia, from uh, all of them PEN members I'd known before. So it PEN was a very, very strong support system for me. And to give back, I later became involved actively in German PEN and then in international PEN. Before, yeah, obviously, I don't think we're going to be able to get on to your your official roles within no. Penn until the next session. But um, it's really important, I think, also that we identify some of the issues that you had in establishing this committee for women writers. Um, why was it so difficult? Why was it so hard to achieve uh, your funding objectives? Why did you have so much competition uh, from other areas in creating the work and the program that you wanted to create? Um, we did not have any former experience with uh, a women's group and how to organize it. The organizer was sitting in New York, and as I said, uh, it was very difficult to work with her. Um, the uh, presidency of the Women's Committee went around the world so when it was in Kathmandu, not everybody could keep in touch or go there when there was a, a meeting there. Um, then it came to Mexico and they had different concerns than we had had. We had uh, wanted to strengthen uh, ties to African women, particularly. And the African women, in fact, were just as uh, strong and just as secure in their lives as anybody in the West was, but they didn't have the public that we had. And I had gone in there to to really open up the uh, two-way street to uh, Africa and Asia and the East. And that was not the purpose for some of the people some of them, you have that in men's groups as well. Some were in there for themselves, for their reputation. So it basically simmered down. It did not become an international, really an international committee that was active everywhere. Um, it centered either in Asia or in Mexico or wherever. Um, the membership switched, the uh, Europeans, all of the Europeans were basically uh, put, pushed aside because uh, 
they had different ideas than than those who were done, then running the women's committee. Um, it depends on who is there. It depends on who is a member. It depends on who is the president. Um, what the committee can do and does. The um, Writers in Prison Committee, of course, uh, helps men and women. So the Women's Committee cannot really um, deal with uh, persecuted women writers. Uh, they can only deal with empowerment, and that's difficult from, for most people. And another question, just uh, along the lines of what we see today, um, how how do you feel the interactions? How equal did you see one another? Um, so when you were dealing with people from Mexico or the USA or Kathmandu, um, you know the the interactions. Um, you know, did you consider one another as equals. I, I, I know that you did. Um, but do you um, think that in some other areas it was not so equal? Um, there were some uppity feelings. Uh, we have to help the Africans. They don't have uh, access to uh, writing. They have a system, they have a culture that uh, does not let women uh, write uh, except that uh, the African women that were in the in the group were um, very well established writers. They uh, came from uh, chiefs' families. They had been given the same education as their uh, brothers had. So it was a kind of culture clash. And some in the particularly the in on the American side, it was. Um, we have to help them. We are, we are in a position. We have to empower them. No, they were empowered. They just needed needed contacts. The same contacts. Actually, everybody needs who writes. And uh, it became, it it fell apart on that end. The East uh, Europeans uh, after ninety, um, or shortly after ninety five. Um, established themselves within their countries as writers or had been writers and journalists before and were just as well established as uh, any of any of us. Uh, so the need for a women's writers committee as it had been envisioned in the beginning was not needed anymore. So this so is it, almost... They, sorry. Yeah. As you said, this is, this it has the same sort of symbology of this Western uh, privileged, uh, but unfortunately ignorant people who say, okay, well, we have so much, they have so little, we have to give them. And even though there is at some point uh, along the line uh, a positive intention, the way in which those intentions are portrayed or presented uh, suggest this form of erroneous superiority? Would you say that there was an element of this? Uh, yes, to some degree. Uh, the other uh, difference was uh, the military feminism versus um, 
African womanism, which is totally different. And if you go in there with, with ideological aims, uh, it couldn't but fail. That's interesting. Can, I mean, can you give me some insight into African womanism? Because I, that's the first time I've heard that term and it, it's intriguing. It's, um, it's uh, pro-women at the same time, not against men. Uh, women in Africa, uh, in the African cultures, in most African cultures, are the breadwinners anyway. They are the market women. They they do the the farming. Um, so in a way, they are established, and they don't need the uh, anti male thrust. Um, they need the respect of the male, which they don't get through through uh, Western style feminism. And they knew that very well. Hmm. I mean, I've also read situations where there are some countries in Africa where a woman is not allowed to own property. So therefore, if her husband dies, um, then she's essentially without a home because she's not allowed to then inherit uh, the home. So as in, there are some... There are some uh, elements within some African nations where uh, there are difficulties for women, and I'm, I'm sure you're not moving away from that. But no, I'm uh, not. Um, yeah. I'm only put it, putting it in context. Um, my mother was not allowed to um, enter the the bank account which had been in her name been opened in her name by my father. She was not allowed to get any money out of it without his approval. She was not allowed to get a job without his approval. Into the 50s, in part, these restrictions uh, existed in the 60s and 70s in Germany. Yeah, I heard a, a woman could not uh, claim that she had been raped by her husband uh, until after the 70s. I think the law was changed in the 70s. Uh, probably even later, yes. Mm. Yes. So um, these things in Africa is, is not one country. It's a huge continent with uh, different cultures and different backgrounds. That's true. But in most um let's say Nigeria, Kenya, and so on, so for the big countries, um, the need for American-style uh, ideological feminism is not there, and they resent it. And that was, that was also a problem. So these are all issues which obviously you were completely well aware of before you um, entered the, the official arena of Penn, um, and um, sort of undertook some of the responsibilities uh, within that role. Did you consider it a part of your job to try to bring together these different elements, to try to find a common language? Um, in a setup like the Women's Committee, you couldn't. Um, that was... Um maybe 30 people in different parts of the world. Um, if you were lucky, they communicated. Um, there was a uh, pa paper or a newspaper which came out every three months and that was done. 
mostly in Mexico. Um, it let's let me put it this way: the committee became very pedestrian. Okay. And um, does it still exist? This particular committee? It still exists. It still meets, but it's uh, one. It's it's the a committee that um, has least effect, I would say. Um, there's another committee, which um, the Peace Committee, which was established in former uh, Yugoslavia and uh, Slovenia. It came out of the uh, Peace Committees of the Yugoslavian area uh, era, and it still exists. It is. Um, they had a a literary conference in Bled every year. The um, inviting uh, center was the Yugoslavian center, and later it became the Slovenian center. Slovenia was um, was the first country accepted uh, as independent. Um, so Bled became. Um, a yearly event. They had their uh, their uh, conference, their literary conference, and alongside they had a meeting of the peace committee. And for a long time, it was uh, Slovenian Pen who chaired that committee. And it always depends on who chairs a committee, uh, what what is done with it, and who is pulled into it. And um, the Peace Committee in many countries, in many pen centers, uh, was neglected for a long time. I don't know what it is right now, whether it has established itself uh, independently. I don't think so. Okay. I mean, it, it is fascinating. And... Uh, um, Something that I have learned over the years of my involvement within groups is that there is a completely different view of things from the outside. Sometimes it's possible for an organization to put across this united front where people simply do not see the infighting, the disagreements, the political discord and so on. Um, but it's not always possible to do that. Um, and so, therefore, it does require a very professional facade uh, to, to, to represent the unity that is needed for an organization like this to function. Um, and it's interesting also that uh, the, here we have these committees um, which also exhibit these traits. So there is a lot, there are problems within and yet still they produce stuff on a quarterly basis where whoever reads it says, oh, look at the wonderful work that they're doing, without in any way knowing how difficult it is uh, actually for any work to be done uh, in the way that it could be. Uh, within a pen as an organization is, uh, has very little infights. Um, they know one another, they meet one another pretty regularly. Um, these uh, representatives of different pen centers who come to London or come to uh, conferences usually are the same. The same. Um, what holds the international pen together is mainly writers in prison, 
the Writers in Prison Committee, there are no infights. We're all fighting for the same cause. The efforts for exiles um, is also pulling together. The um, pen as such is, is a very strong and very laudable exercise in humanity and humanism. And this is why I was very proud of being involved in Writers in Prison, Writers in Exile um, for so long. So it would seem that the um, the importance of the task, the, the principles of freedom, liberty, uh, the right to express oneself, the right to live uh, in, in a way which um, essentially protects the dignity of uh, intelligence and life. Uh, these were obviously uh, strengthening factors for for those committees that you there, there mentioned. Absolutely, because uh, first of all, the committees started uh, during politically rough times. Uh, Penn never was a uh, writer's union where you supported your neighbor uh, to get a uh, publisher or to find a uh, publication um, outlets. Uh, it was always there to represent the freedom to write and the freedom to publish to this day. Uh, of course, we now have also uh, publishing associations, but a uh, pen is very, very important in terms of writers. Uh, for a long while, we were also um, trying to protect the journalists that got under pressure. But by now, there are quite a number of, of uh, associations that for the protection of journalists that pen is the only one the only organization worldwide that is uh, fighting for the freedom to speak, to write, and for the freedom to live as a writer. Okay. So this brings us wonderfully to uh, the next stage, uh, which you will talk about then as uh, a member of PEN, a leading member of PEN in Germany, uh, and thereafter your your career within uh, PEN International. Um, and that will be, our, I think, the focus of our next session, unless I'm mistaken. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Karin, what can I say? Uh, I had the pleasure of you on Easter Friday, and now I've been able to speak to you on Easter Monday. Uh, I am really looking forward to the next episode. So again, thank you very much for your time and your patience. Thank you. And um, you decide what the next date will be. Okay. I'll, uh, we'll have a quick chat now and, um, yeah. and then we can get that all organized. So from me, thank you and all the best. Thank you so much.